if you've tuned into my podcast, you're not going to be disappointed. Well, I guess you have already tuned in because you're here. So, in fact, you're going to be very glad that you clicked a button and you're here because I'm talking with the author of all authors. He's zooming in with me and I'm seriously beyond thrilled. Right about now would be a great time for a drum roll. I am so excited and privileged to have the chance to talk everything books with the incredibly talented, award-winning, and number one New York Times best-selling middle grade historical fiction and realistic fiction author, as well as graphic novel author, not to mention the recipient of the Sydney Taylor Book Award, the National Jewish Book Award, as well as the Malka Penn Award for Human Rights and Children's Literature, just to name a few awards. You know him, you love him, I love his books. I'm talking about the amazingly talented author, writing legend himself, Alan Gratz. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, E-Trade. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And uh, thank you for that amazing introduction. I should take you with me everywhere I go. So Alan is truly an inspiration. So when he agreed to be interviewed on my podcast, I screamed and jumped around for like 20 minutes. And then I was like, okay, I got to write the questions down. And then I was like, today? Like at 9 a.m., I was it just all hit me. Like, <laughs> whoa, I'm interviewing Alan Gratz. And well, now thanks. I'm super excited to ask my first question. Let's do it. So you really sparked my love of middle grade historical fiction. But I'm curious to know what inspired you to write historical fiction? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I read some books that were historical fiction. And I enjoyed those. But I also read fantasy novels and contemporary stuff. It's not like I fixated on historical fiction when I was a kid. Um, it was really as an adult when I was I, I was reading a lot of different stuff. I loved reading uh, historical fiction for adults as well when I was an, was an adult, adult. But then I, when I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to write, my first couple of books that I wrote and sent out didn't get published. I wrote a book about uh, kid superheroes in a, that I made up on in my own you know, fantasy world. And nobody bought that book. I wrote a YA romantic comedy. Nobody bought that book. And I was in a I was in a bookstore, and I was going through the travel section because I also love to travel and I love to read about other places. And I picked up a book about traveling to Japan. And I was reading this book, just kind of flipping through it in the bookstore, and it had a picture of a guy throwing out a first pitch uh, at a at a nineteen fifteen baseball tournament in Tokyo, Japan, and he was wearing like a kimono and a floppy hat and geita like a wooden sandals and he was throwing out this pitch and i was like wait they had baseball way back in the like the the 1890s in japan i thought baseball had come to japan maybe after world war ii after the american occupation and so i went to the library checked out a book about uh baseball in japan i found out 1890s wasn't even the beginning they had oh. baseball as early as the 1860s like around the time of the american civil war and so, uh, and that baseball had been introduced by sailors who were doing business with Japan and it caught on like wildfire and that baseball has grown its own path in Japan. So now we're seeing a whole bunch of Japanese baseball stars come to the United States. But back then it was growing independently because there was no TV, no radio to talk about it. So anyway, I'm reading about all this and I figure out that not only is the baseball era starting that early, but it's kind of the end of the samurai era. Like they overlapped just a little bit. And I was like, wait, you had kids running around with samurai swords and baseball bats at the same time. I gotta write a book about that. But I'd never written historical fiction. I'd read it, but I'd never written it. And so that idea was so good. And I loved it. I, I love Japan. I've been now ever since I, I hadn't been there to begin with. I love reading about Japan. I love learning about Japan. I love baseball. So it was marrying two of the things I really loved. And so I said, I, I really want to write this book, but now I got to figure out how to write historical fiction. And, and it was that process of learning how to write historical fiction, how to make this story work, that really developed my love of writing historical fiction. Well, I don't know the best puns, but I have to say this one because it was a home run idea. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I have not read that novel, but I certainly need to because, like, I didn't even realize that there was baseball in Japan until, like, two years ago. And it right. sounds like something that would be really interesting to research. Right. So, it, it, its birth in the United States was maybe, like, 30 years before that. 
So they've had baseball in Japan for almost as long as we had, which I kind of blew my mind when I found that out. And so I really had a fun time learning about the different evolution of the game in both places. Really interesting because the 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 fans watch the game in a different way. You know, we when we when we watch uh, soccer games from around the world as as American citizens, we see them like singing and dancing in the stands, and we don't off we we have we have different. Um, different uh, things that we might say, like uh, different ways that we root for our teams. Mm -hmm. But in a, the United States, we often don't like sing or play music. Maybe there's somebody over there with a trumpet, you know, <laughs> you know, at a football game. But, um, but, but really Japanese baseball has that. They have sections that sing and they have different fan coordinated stuff. Um, they also, because they had a very different attitude toward the game. They always had uh, ties in baseball from the oh. very beginning where we got rid of ties and said, we're going to keep playing extra innings until somebody wins. And Japan, if you finish nine or 10 innings and the game's tied, they're like, okay, it's a tie. And they also would keep track of bunts on the scoreboard, not just runs and hits and, and errors, and because they really valued the sacrifice play. They really valued when a teammate would give up their out, their at bat for somebody else. So it was just a really interesting way that, that two different cultures viewed the same game. I love that stuff. Yeah, I certainly love that stuff as well. And I just, I think that the variations, well, I keep saying it. I, once I get off this interview, I need to look into the title of that book and find it. It's at called, the book oh, so the book is called Samurai Shortstop. That was my very first, it turned into my very first published book. That's the end of that story, which I didn't tell. Uh, it's called Samurai Shortstop. And um, it was my, it was my first time writing historical fiction and my first published book, and I, I, um, I was hooked ever, ever since. That's a really good title, Samurai Shortstop. It has a nice ring Thank to you. It. I came up with the title first, and then kind of wrote the story around it. <laughs> I mean, it's the opposite. Although I can never finish a story. <laughs> that's another. That's a whole other thing we could talk about. I know that trouble too. Yeah. So I know when it comes to book genres, there's a lot more research involved when writing historical fiction than probably any other kind of fiction. So Maybe. what are some interesting and reliable sources you use for research? Yeah, so when you're researching history, you're right, it's tough because there's so much to get right. Mm -hmm. So not only do you want to get the big parts of history right, the 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 facts of the the politics and the you know uh, the the larger stuff, but you also want to get right how people talk and what they were wearing and what kind of food they eat. I remember I made one big mis what well, I don't know if it's big. I made one mistake in Samurai Shortstop and didn't even know I'd made it until some kids called me out on it. But at the end, they're eating ice cream because ice cream was like brand new mm -hmm. and they're tasting it. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And I had them eating it off of ice cream cones. And then I went on a, tr a school visit to like St. Louis or someplace. And they were like, like, I got done with my presentation and like every kid's hand shot up and I'm like, uh oh, something's up. <laughs> and I call on the first kid and they're like, you put in your book that they're eating off of an ice cream cone, but the ice cream cone wasn't invented until the St. Louis World's Fair in 19 whatever. And I was like, okay, now I get it. So <laughs> like I had done the research to make sure that ice cream was around and brand new, but I'd forgotten and just sort of brainlessly had it on an ice cream cone instead of them eating out of a bowl. They would have been eating it out of a bowl to start instead of using an ice cream cone. And that was just, it's just one of those little tiny details that if you don't if you don't know it, to, if you don't know that to, to think about it, you don't think about it. And, yeah. and so there's so many things you can get wrong about history. So the trap is also that you can, you can read so much about history that you never write your book, right? Like, because I didn't live through the 1940s or the 1890s or whatever time period I'm writing about, I will never, ever know what it was really like and, and be able to write that 100% accurately, right? Yeah. I can do as much research as possible and that's what I try to do, but you never know what you're missing. So you asked like, what are some sources to use? So I start when I'm, I, I kind of use what they call a snowflake method. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but if you imagine a snowflake and how it has all these branching crystals that go out from the center. So you start out at the edge of the snowflake when you're researching and you get books from the library that are like the history of the Meiji era in Japan, which is when baseball started to flourish in Japan. So I read about the Meiji period, right? And this big time period, which is way more information than I'm gonna need, but it gives me the context. And then maybe I read about 
the beginnings of baseball. So I'm going a little bit closer into the center of the snowflake and I get books about Japanese baseball and the origins. And then I realize I want to set my story at a Japanese school. So now I get a book that's about Japanese school life. And so I get a little closer in. And then I want to really write the story from a Japanese kid's point of view. So now I need to hear what a Japanese person was thinking and feeling at that time. And so I get closer in on the snowflake and I try to find some like firsthand accounts, you know, what they call primary sources of somebody who lived through it and was there and wrote about their experience or was recorded in some way about having this experience. So that's how I approach uh, researching for historical fiction. Start big and then get more finely tuned as much as possible until I get as close to the center of that snowflake as I can. So where do I go though? The library. The library is my number one source of research for everything. Um, I rarely get to travel to a place that I'm writing about. And I don't always get to talk to somebody in person who's been through what I am writing about. Uh, I almost entirely rely on books from the library. And I've got to say, that's Saint, when the St. Louis kids um, <laughs> were talking about the ice cream cone. It's only St. Louis kids who would know that. Right. That's the thing, right? And so when you're writing historical fiction, like you might read that book and you get to the ice cream part. You're like, cool, they had ice cream right? It doesn't matter to you that they're eating it off an ice cream cone. But one little detail like that in a historical novel that somebody knows about can pull them out of the story, right? And and so you're, you're going to make mistakes as a historical fiction writer because you didn't live during that time. You weren't there, right? So something's not going to be right. What you want to do is limit those things to things that are hopefully very inconsequential, really, whether they're eating it ice cream out of a bowl or off of a cone doesn't really matter to the story at all. But you want to keep those things to a minimum because you don't want huge groups of readers to be pulled out of your story. You want them to stay with you the whole time. And hopefully those kids in St. Louis, they were still able to enjoy the book for everything else that was in it. But certainly they all fixated on that because they all they had all been taught. And I don't even think it was St. Louis. It was some little town where there they had some claim to fame. Like this is where the ice cream cone was invented. And I think it was outside of St. Louis. If I'm and maybe they took it to the World's Fair. Um, but everybody in this town knew because they were really proud of this fact, right? Yeah. And so it was really important to them to get it right. And so for most people who read that book, it wouldn't matter at all. But for those kids, it did. And so you want to try and limit those so that you're you're keeping people in the world of your story as much as possible. I've got to say, it's kind of off topic, but I would not know that the ice cream cone wasn't invented before the ice cream. Like, that's like saying the TV remote was invented before the TV. Right, I know. It's something like that. So uh, now when you think about it, it makes sense. Somebody made ice yeah. cream and then ate it out of a bowl. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then... Like I, I think of ice cream and ice cream cones going together all the time, but of course one might've come along later. So it's little things like that, yeah. that you're never gonna know if you don't know it or unless you run across it in your research. And so that's why you wanna keep doing as much research as possible and as deep a dive into that time and place as you can. However, if I had read books until I learned when ice cream cone was created versus when ice cream was invented, before I wrote Samurai Shortstop, I might never have written Samurai Shortstop. So it's a question of balancing how much you know about a time and a place versus actually getting the book written. Yeah, I love that answer. And I also <laughs> just find that story, it's not really laugh out loud, but it's also like, whoa, only those kids I know. know. And now I just can't stop thinking about it. I know, it's the kind of thing where when you go on the road and you meet people who've read your books, you find out so people have people have reactions and and interactions with your book that are that could be radically different than what you imagined when you wrote it, um, and and that's that's an amazing thing about books is that everybody brings their own life experiences to the book they're reading, and and a book can be a very different thing for multiple readers. Yeah, and speaking of life experiences, I know a brilliant segue. <laughs> um, nice segue. So I love all your novels, no matter their popularity, but I have to say, now originally I thought that Refugee was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years, but then, whoa, I realized it's three years. Refugee <laughs> yeah. has been on the New York Times bestseller list for three years. That's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. And in case any of you didn't know this, 
Refugee is also a global read-aloud book, and the awards don't really matter, of course, they kind of do, but anyway, my question is, do you really pay attention to how much recognition your books receive, or do you try to avoid knowing and just keep moving forward with your writing? Right. No, it's a great question, and and you're absolutely right. Like, on the one hand, it kind of doesn't matter, because what's in the books and the fact that people are reading them is what matters. On the other hand, I'm human. I'm vain. I like when people say, good job, Alan. I like when people give me awards or when a book stays on the bestseller list. So Refugee has been on there more than three years. It's getting close to four, which is just astounding. And, and it hasn't been on there its entire life. Like it popped up and then went off and it popped back up and then went off. But it's been on there pretty consistently. Every Christmas, when all the cookbooks start to sell, it falls off. And but then in January, it comes back. But And Ground Zero, uh, a book which I had come out during the heart of the pandemic in, in February of 2021, um, that book is now, um, if it's on the list next week, knock on wood, it'll be a full year on the list, 52 weeks which is another astounding thing for me. So yeah, on the one hand, I, I mean, I look at the list every week and my editor sends me an email and says, hey, you're on there and we celebrate because it is important and it's a big deal. But on the other hand, it's I, I'm, I'm kind of writing the same books I would be writing regardless of if I'm on the list or not, right? Yeah. Or what kind of awards I get. Um, my number one thing every time I write a book is I want to make sure it's a book that a young reader can't put down. That's my that's my only goal, not to win a big award, not to hit the New York Times bestseller list. Those would be awesome. And I want those. I'm human. I want those. But my number one thing is always, are a lot of kids going to want to read this? Is this going to be a book they can't put down? If I, if I can't do that, I wouldn't want to do the other things. Like to me, it's super important to, re- the, the whole reason I'm doing this is so that folks like you read my books and love them. So that's the number one important thing. The, the New York Times bestseller list is nice because it means that a lot of people are buying the book and sharing the book and a lot of people are reading it. So that's a cool thing. Awards are nice because they get you attention for the books and mean that librarians will pull them, put them in their library and put them on display. But the whole goal for me with all that is how many people can I get to read this book? And I don't care if you check it out from the library or buy it from a bookstore. I want you to just read it, you know? So that's the big thing for me. Refugee has taken on a life of its own, which I love. Uh, that is that is a book of my heart, and it is a book that I wrote because I felt really passionately about what I was seeing happening in the world, and I wanted to shine a light on it for kids. And the fact that that book has continued to, to have this amazing life of its own and has continued to be read by thousands of kids is just amazing. And I'm so thankful to all the, the librarians and teachers and parents who buy the books or, 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 or take kids to the bookstore or the library. I'm, I'm so thankful to all the kids who read it and talk about it. I have a lot of kids who will read my books and then tell the adults in their lives about that they should read it, which is awesome. So all the other stuff is great. And I, and I want it because I'm human and I want to be, I want to get awards and I want, I want my book to be on the bestseller list. I'm not going to lie, but that's not my main goal. My main goal is always to have kids reading my books and to write a book that they want to read and can't put down. Yeah, and you've certainly done that and a lot more with Refugee. And I'm sure a lot of parents, teachers, kids, librarians, bookstore owners, booksellers, everybody related to books are so thankful for your contributions. And speaking of Refugee, so Refugee is a story of three protagonists. They're all from different eras and they're all connected. But there's right. also, um, speaking of, Banned Books Week just started. Like, yeah, actually, it just started today, um, yeah. well, tomorrow. Yeah. And um, I just, I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on the mass book bannings across the country? And why should we kids care? Yeah, it's really sad to see this happening. So I wrote, banned this book, uh, and it came out, I think, in 2016. And it was before all of this modern wave of this more recent wave of book challenges and bannings that we've seen across the United States. And um, at the time when I wrote it, uh, the numbers were something like every year, the American Library Association got about 300 books that were reported to them as being challenged or banned in the United States every year. And that's a lot of books. 
Uh, they also thought that maybe that was only like 15% of all the books that were being challenged or banned. And th th those are only the ones that they heard about. They could only report the ones they heard about. So they were figuring that maybe like a thousand books or more were being challenged or banned, just taken off of library shelves by community activists or, or administrations and just never reported. So I wanted to write a book that highlighted that and, and just said, hey, kids, watch out for this. Like if this happens in your community, be ready and, and be ready to speak up about it. And now, oh my gosh. So it, it's just, it, it's it's multiplied tenfold, 20fold. I don't know. We have communities all over the United States who are challenging and banning books and, and getting them removed from classrooms and school libraries and public libraries. Um, there was a case in Virginia where somebody tried to sue a Barnes and Noble for even carrying the books, you know, and, and, that, that's just a it's a horrifying situation because what we've what we've seen in the past is again going back to history um when you ban books when you tell people what they can and can't read it's a step on the way to um to an autocratic society it's a step on the way to a society where every part of your life is is dictated by the government and that's not what we signed up for as americans as americans we value our freedom. We were founded on the idea that we have all kinds of freedoms, the freedom of religion, the freedom uh, of expression. Uh, and, um, and that, and, and books are, books are definitely fall into that freedom of expression. And so it's, it's really dangerous. It, it's a slippery slope. As soon as you start banning one book, you can ban them all. And as soon as you ban all the books, then you can start telling people what movies they can watch and who they can marry and who they can't marry. And, you know, uh, what they can what they can think and what they can't think. Uh, it gets really, really dangerous. And we've seen that in many countries in, in the past and, and how badly that works out. So, um, gosh, it, it's it's been it's been awful to watch it happen. I hope that Ban This Book is a tool that kids can use. Uh, why should kids care? Because you should have access to everything that's out there. Now, whether or not you choose to read it, that's up to you. Whether or not your parents allow you to read it, that's up to your parents. Uh, as I say in the book, nobody should be allowed to tell you what you can and can't read except your parents. Uh, while they're your parents and while you're a kid, they are still the bosses of you, I'm sorry. But uh, other than that, uh, once we grow up, we should be able to read whatever we want to read and, um, and um, think whatever we want to think. That's what the United States is built on. So we have to be really careful and watch out for it as kids, as adults. And when we see it in our communities, fight back. And when when I wrote Ban This Book, I, I really wanted the message to, to be, and this is a message with a lot of my books, honestly, that kids have a voice. That you may not be able to vote yet, and people may not, uh, you know, you, we're not, you, kids aren't spending a ton of money, and so they're not voting with their dollars, as, as, as we often say here in the United States, in terms of what products you support and what you don't. You do that a little bit. But more than anything, what you can do is you can speak up. You can go to school board meetings. Um, you can write letters to the editor in your community. Um, and you can say why it is that you value intellectual freedom, why you value the right to read whatever it is uh, that your parents allow you to read. So um, I hope that that Ban This Book is a, is, is a an example of how kids can use their voice, uh, their voices to... Uh, to fight back against book challenges and book banning. That is one of the most profound answers to any of my questions ever, <laughs> gotta say. And I well, think you. I think you're so right because like it's just banning books, not only is it freedom of like just you know, we have freedom of expression, freedom of speech, we have all these different right. freedoms, and now people are banning books. It's like it's like you're saying um you can't read the truth because a lot of right. books that are being banned are the truth there are people who might want to marry um to different people than um some the government is like right or then 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 who you know whoever's making the rules wants you yes. to marry right yeah. yeah and i just think that it's scary like the um I read Ban This Book a couple years ago. I didn't really know that books were being banned, but now, like, a few, um, and when I did look it up, it wasn't right. nearly as bad as it is now. Like, it's just getting worse and worse. Right. And 
I really think that Ban This Book is such a great resource, like you said, and it's, it is inspiring a lot of kids. And I hope that as book banning gets, well, I, for starters, I hope that book bans stop. Me because too. all these books, all these stories need to be told. But also yeah. I hope that Ban This Book, it's just a, a resource that more and more kids learn about and they use their voices. And as the top of your book says, you're never too young to fight censorship, everybody. Yeah, that's too true. Old. Right, exactly. And we should all be wary of it. And um, oftentimes, I don't you probably have heard the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Mm-hmm. One person could show up at a school board meeting and say, I hate this book. I think we should ban it. And then the school board bans the book because one person went in and 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 got upset about it when there might be hundreds of people in the community who really love that book and embrace that book, but they weren't there to defend it and they weren't there to speak up for it. So I think sometimes we we have to be wary and be reactive and we have to 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 step up and say, wait, 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 that person is wrong. Everybody should have access to this book. Not everybody has to read it, but everybody should have access to it. Um, but we also need to be proactive in reminding school boards that we support the the right to read and 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 get in there and say don't like we have we have a system for book reviews in libraries and it's there for a reason and if a book is deemed to be inappropriate for the age level for example like there are some books i wouldn't say should be in an elementary school library right but we have age levels of things that are appropriate i'm not saying every book in the world written for adults should be in every elementary school library but when we start taking books that are that are appropriate for at that age group out because we don't like their content that's when we get into real trouble so we just have to be i think we should we just need to be proactive and be out there talking about it and saying what we believe in uh so that the the folks who are the in that vocal minority don't uh, sway things the way they want them to go yeah and i just we only I I need I think to the future a lot of the times when I think see book bannings like um a lot of people they don't really think it's it really matters like it's just one book oh it's just right. another book but right. I just think what's next because if books have been are being banned freedom is being taken away right. then what's next like is the government just going to rule everything are we not going to be allowed to watch movies be right. ourselves so I just, another interesting storyline in Refugee is besides how everyone is connected, it's also the message, the messages that are shared. Each family's history and the storyline itself is so unique. And yet they all kind of have similar themes in common. Like the message is treating people no matter what heritage, income, or culture they come from. You have to treat them with respect and kindness because they're all human beings. And just because someone is different than you, that doesn't mean that they're less than you. That's that's one of the main reasons I loved reading Refugee, and I love all forms of middle grade because the, they all share the message that like you shouldn't be criticized because of what you want to read, who you are, your opinions, and just I, I'm so glad that all your books feature so much meaning, and it also helped me understand what it might have been like when my um, my great-grandparents escaped to America because of who they were. They they were Jewish, and they had to escape for religious freedom. And, for instance, Joseph's story, while my, my grandparents didn't escape during um, the Holocaust, it, they did escape in a very difficult, scary, horrible time for who we were. And it just, right. Joseph's story really got me thinking what it was like what was it like because i've always heard the stories but what was it like what were they feeling and i feel like all of your stories they really share that not just what's going on but also what each character is feeling their emotions how they're reacting to the situation so was there someone or something that happened in your family background or that you read or heard that inspired you to write this story so for refugee, there's a lot of me in it. Uh, nothing very specifically. Uh, my family had a, a a story, kind of like yours. Um, my first ancestor to come to the United States was a guy named Louis Alexander Gratz. He was Jewish. He left 
uh, a little town in what's now Poland, but was in was in Prussia back then in the 1860s, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, came to the United States. So I don't know that he was leaving necessarily because of religious persecution. I think he was more looking for a, a better opportunity yeah. here in the United States, as so many immigrants do. And um, but when he came here, the interesting thing to me is he hid the fact that he was Jewish. Really? In fact, my family, right, I was raised uh, Christian, and my family didn't realize that my ancestor was Jewish until my grandfather started doing family genealogy research when I was in the fourth grade and found out that that Louis A. had been Jewish. And then when he came to America, just kind of hid that fact and uh, did what a lot of people did uh, and 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 tried to assimilate into United States culture, uh, the dominant religion, the dominant language, you know, tried to become, quote unquote, American, when, of course, everything and all people are Americans. Um, but but a lot of people feel that pressure to to conform to the to the general society. Mm-hmm. So we didn't we had no idea. We had no idea that my family was uh, had a Jewish background, which was really exciting to discover, to, to, to learn something new about our family uh, and some cultural tradition that we didn't know that we shared or were connected to. Um, so I didn't use him as an example in this. Uh, I was more writing about these specific times and places, but I, but I always think about that. Uh, my family is not Native American. My family mm-hmm. came to the United States from somewhere else, like a majority of Americans' uh, families did, right? At some point, somebody in our family came to this country. Was it because they just needed, a, were looking for a better opportunity? Was it because they were escaping a war, uh, religious persecution, escaping a famine? You know, there are multiple reasons that somebody can be a refugee seeking a new home. So for me, uh, really, my inspiration was what I was seeing on the news. Uh, the We were in the height of the Syrian refugee crisis at the time, and I wanted to write something about that. But I also I wanted to show that this isn't a pro- wasn't a problem that was just happening in 2015, 2016. It's something that had been happening for a long time and that we kept kept making the same mistakes. So the reason that there's multiple points of view and multiple times in refugee is because I wanted to say, look what we did to Jewish refugees in the 30s. Look what we did to Cuban refugees in the 90s. Look what we're doing to Syrian refugees now. And who's going to be the next group in 20 or 30 years that we're also turning away? So while I have a, a an immigrant story in my background, I don't have a refugee story in my background, yeah. but I... But I wanted to talk about the ways that people are driven from their homes and 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 seek out new places to live. Yeah. And I don't know if you've read Linked by Gordon Corman, but it sounds a lot like your um, family history. A great book. Yeah, I love Gordon Corman, too. Uh, I, I want to be him when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're well on the way. I hope so. I hope so. But he's he's amazing. He's a legend as well. Have you ever gotten to interview him? I'm interviewing him in I'm interviewing him in November. So oh sweet. Okay. I'm very Good. I'll look forward that. to seeing that. We kind of have to decide who we want to be. Yes. Right? Like not just you're right. We have to decide how we want to respond, but who are we? And and yeah. and and how do we if we are a, a country that 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 says, give me your tired, give me your poor, you know, like the like the Statue of Liberty says, mm-hmm. you know, it, your your huddled masses, it says on the Statue of Liberty. If if we are a country that that is built on immigration. If we we're a country that that said, everybody come here, it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe in, we will take you, we can all be American. And there is no one person who represents all of America. We're all this big melting pot. We have to, we were that and we still are, but there are a lot of people who don't embrace that. Mm-hmm. And and I think the question has to become like, like who who are, we need to decide who we are and be sure of it. And then let that, that core knowledge of ourselves as a country, as a people, as individuals, guide each one of our decisions. And um, I think a lot of people are kind of lost right now uh, and, and, and feeling like they're not sure what their identity is or what the, what the United States' identity is. Um, and there's a big battle over that right now. And um, I hope that we come down on the side of a, of a country that will, um, that will embrace helping people. That will that will understand that we were built on 
uh, on people coming together from many different places and that uh, what makes us a richer uh, country, and I don't mean money, like I mean uh, richer culturally, richer intellectually, uh, richer in terms of lifestyle, is our great diversity. And that that the more the merrier. Uh, that's the way I feel. There's not a there's some people who feel differently, um, but I but I really was trying to get at that. Like and 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 I hope that that's a that's a question that that readers are left with after refugee. Who are we and who do we want to be and how can we how can our actions reflect who we want to be? Can we get a round of applause for Alan Gratz's <laughs> answers today? They are Thanks. incredible. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, running for office in November. No, I'm I'm not really. <laughs> yeah. If you were, then I'd be voting. <laughs> well, thank you. Just um, reading my books is a great thing. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I've asked you a lot about Ban this book, and you've talked a lot about it. Mm-hmm. So I I just want to reiterate what it's one of my favorite novels ever. It really woke me up. Like um, it's like an awakening in my mind. Like, whoa, books are being banned. I want to do something about it. And so it's a story of Amy Ann, a middle schooler who organizes a underground banned book library in her locker after learning her favorite stories are being banned, not just in her school library, but all over. And after reading your book for the first time, as I said, I did some research online and was pretty shocked to find out censorship and book banning was still going on. I had only known about book banning, like book burnings happening in World War II. And right whoa, it's happening in today's world. Books are still being banned, and it's worse than it's been in a lo- very long time. So I, I asked, I've asked you a lot about research, but how did you kind of, what, did you have like a lot of research when it came to ban this book, or did you have an idea of like the entire book in your mind? So I started with the idea. I started with the idea of a girl in elementary school who has a banned book locker library and checking out books to kids in secret, like on the sly. That was the core idea that I had. Then I had to decide, am I going to make up fake titles or am I going to have real books that they're sharing? And I thought about doing fake titles because then the books don't ever get old, right? Like the, like, like there are books that were big 50 years ago that we don't know much about now because they just aren't read as much. And I worried about dating the book. Like I worried about putting book titles in that 50 years from now, kids would be like, what's, you know, what's Captain Underpants, right? I don't, I think 20, I think 50 years from now, everybody's going to still know Captain Underpants, but just as an example. So I went back and forth. Do I make up book titles that, that are, that are supposed to be the real books in there or do I use real books? So I finally decided I wanted to use real books because I wanted I wanted the message to not be like, oh, I'm making up books that have been banned and challenged. I wanted it to be like, hey, do you realize that there are a lot of books right now, real books that you've heard of that are being banned and challenged? And so I wanted to use the real ones that have been challenged. And so I contacted the American Library Association and I started doing a lot of research with them. And every book in Ban This Book that the parent group challenges and bans in their community is a book that has actually been challenged or banned in the last 30 years. At least it was when I wrote it in like 2015. And now I dare say that there's way more books I could have chosen. Like if I were writing that book right now. Right. Um, But yeah, all the books that I mentioned in there are books that have been challenged or even banned in communities. And I felt like that was really important so that you could go to your school library and you could see that book on the shelf and you could say that book right there, that's one that people have challenged and banned, and you could read it if you wanted to read it. But you could also see that I'm not just making this stuff up, right? I'm not making up book challenges. I'm not making up book bannings. They really happen. And so that that reality, that verisimilitude was really important to me because I wanted, I wanted you to understand, like you said, this awakening that you had, like, oh, boom, this is really happening right now. And I think if I had used, like, fake books – um, like made up stories, made up made up uh, titles, then it would have felt like I was kind of making up the whole situation. But when you're like, wait, Captain Underpants, Harry Potter, you know, the the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler, like like books that you can go into your library and find right now, like that that makes it real. That 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 turns it into a, a even though it's it's fiction, 
it makes it feel real. So the research that I had to do, I had the concept, the idea for it, but the research that I had to do was what books am I going to use that have really been challenged and banned? And so the American Library Association has amazing resources. They keep track of all the ones that are reported every year. Uh, they rank them in terms of which ones are most banned. And Captain Underpants, to, to bring that one up again, is often banned and challenged um, because it shows disrespect for adults and guy running around in his underpants, you yeah, know. I, I mean, I there's all kinds of yeah. wild reasons that people find to to challenge or ban books. Um, so it was really important to me to do that research and make sure that all those books were really books that had been challenged or banned. Now, before I ask the next question, I just want to read all the, um, in case people didn't know, these are all the books. Oh, yeah. Just a few that have been challenged. They're on the back yeah, of yeah. Ben's book. So there's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark by Alvin Schwartz, Matilda by Roald Dahl. That's really it's that's really surprising, actually. I know, I know. I've, I've noticed that a lot of my favorite books, like they're so popular that they're getting banned, like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Percy Jackson. Right. And Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhug. I hope I'm pronouncing these names right. I think Fitzhugh is, uh, but you got it. Yeah, yeah. But everything else has been great. Yeah, Wait Till Helen Comes by Mary Downing Hahn. It's yeah, Perfectly Normal point. by Robbie H. Harris. From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basley Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg. All the mm -hmm. Junie B. Jones books by Barbara Park. Yeah. All the Captain Underpants books by Dolph Pilkey. The Egypt Game by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. And all the Goosebumps books by Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein. That's yeah. just crazy to think about. And I know. Um, even crazier is that's just to name a few. That's yeah. 10 or so out of right. the hundreds it's shocking it's painful mm -hmm. and like it's just it's frightening to me too mm -hmm. yeah it is mind-boggling it's frightening um because it's the start of bad things like if we let that stuff continue then like we said earlier uh what comes next what comes next and so we have to we have to fight these battles wherever we see them and a big deal in this book is um, Amy Ann at one point is like, I don't, she's like, I don't care about Captain Underpants. I don't like those books. So why should I care that those get challenged and banned? And you kind of asked that at the beginning when you were asking me about ban this book. Like, why should kids care? You should care because it's it's about about freedom of expression. You should care because you shouldn't have people telling you what you can and can't read. But also you should care about the things that you don't even like. Like you should you should fight for everybody else's right to read what they like. Right. I don't love every movie that comes out. I don't love every book that comes out, but that doesn't mean I don't want them on the shelf. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't read them. Those are going to have their own fans. And we've got to remember to fight not just for the things that we love. She loves from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basley Frankweiler. That's her favorite book. So we can't just fight for the things we love. we got to do that. But we also have to fight for the things that we don't really love, but that might mean something to somebody else. Right. And that's a big part of that book, too, is her coming to that understanding of like, oh, I, this isn't just me fighting for one book. This is me fighting for all books so that everybody can find the book that means something to them and that, that they love. Yeah. And I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I'm just going to ask you like a couple more questions. Sure. No, it's been great to chat. I love it. Thank you. And it's been amazing to chat, to chat with you as well. So I'm, I want to talk about two degrees. I'm oh, really good. excited, and I'm sure our listeners are too, to read your newest novel. It's just coming out in a few weeks. It's your 18th novel yeah. for young readers that is going to be published. And it sounds like another super fascinating subject. And of course, climate change, it's not just a relevant topic. It's on people's minds, but it's also so important. But climate change has really made an impact on where I live. There have been fires oh, yeah. and your book actually takes place in the Sierra Nevadas or Nevadas. Yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think it's, I think people say it both ways. Yeah. It's all good. So it's, it affects like your book takes place in where I live and you, I, I haven't read it yet, but I'm sure you wrote it spot on. Like, I hope so. Thank there's you. been, the air quality has been in the hundreds here. Right. I, I've, the, there's a mosquito fire going on that I've heard about. Right. It's covered right. 50,000 acres and it's big. Yeah. So, I think that writing about climate change, I, I've writing about it in like the way you write. I'm super excited to read it, as I've said. Well, cool. So thank you. Without giving any spoilers away, <laughs> um, is there a little bit you can share about it? 
Sure, totally. So you're right. One of the stories takes place in Sierra Nevada in sort of central California up in the mountains. Uh, one of the stories takes place in Miami, Florida. And another uh, of the stories takes place in Churchill, Manitoba up in Canada. Ooh. So it's a story of four different kids in three different parts of North America, all of whom are trying to survive uh, contemporary climate disasters. So it all takes place in the present day. And they all, all the stories actually take place right at the same time. So right at the same time that I have a girl named Akira who is trying to survive a wildfire in, in California with her horse. I also have at the same moment, a girl in Florida who's trying to survive a massive hurricane that's hit the city with her neighbor's dog in tow. And I have two boys up in Churchill, Manitoba, same time of year, same moment, who are trying to escape from a polar bear who's come in off the sea ice because the sea ice hasn't reformed. Because usually the sea ice would reform in the fall and the polar bears would go out to hunt seals and then people could go out and be outside and not have to worry about polar bears. But now because the sea ice is melting, the polar bears are coming into town and they're staying later. And these two boys find themselves being hunted by a polar bear. So it's four kids, three stories, two degrees of temperature change. That's where the two degrees comes from. The two degree rise that we're trying to stop before we hit it, before, uh, before we get to two degrees of temperature rise from the beginning of the industrial era, when we started pumping CO2 and methane and stuff into the atmosphere and, and making it hotter. Um, and um, one cause, and that is climate change. So I'm super excited about this book. I was asked for a long time when I would do school visits, we are you going to write a book about climate change? And I kept thinking, well, I'd love to, because it's a huge topic and I want to write about it. I want to learn more about the science. I want to, I want to write a compelling story about it. But I was like, man, climate change, it's kind of slow. It takes place over, well, the Earth's climate has changed over eons, right? I mean, like a long time we've had ice ages and we've had hot times on the on the planet. And even within like the span of human history, we've had a wide range of different climates and temperatures. And so I was like, and and climate change as we know it, this heat that you were talking about, like like the 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 fact that you know what the the heat index is, the the smog index for your town. Like when I was a kid, we didn't think about that stuff because we didn't have the, those problems. And now you're monitoring it because it's a fact of your life. And like all that has come along just recently in 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 terms of of human uh, evolution and and the world and so we look at the time from the 1800s about the time when the industrial revolution started sometimes people put it at 1880 which is about the time we started keeping really good records about the weather until now and from that time the temperature of the earth on average has risen about a little over one degree celsius which is close to two degrees fahrenheit so just that amount of temperature rise, you're like, oh, one degree. The temperature goes up 10 degrees from day to day where I live, right? It's not a big deal. But when we're talking about the average of the earth, one degree temperature rise uh, in like the Arctic means a whole lot of different stuff than it does to us in, in where we live sort of right in the middle of the Northern hemisphere. And it means a lot to people who live at the equator where it's already very hot, the hottest part of the, of the earth. So Subtle little temperature changes can mean a huge impact on our earth. So I wanted to write a book where I couldn't, I could, I, I thought about telling a story that took place like a little bit in the past and a little bit in the seventies and a little bit now, but then I thought, no, I want to tell three stories about things that are happening right here, right now to highlight just how this is affecting so many people and all over all over, right? I just use North America, but it's happening the same way all over the world, really. And I could have picked dozens of places all over the world as my example. So um, yeah, it's a big book for me. Um, reading about climate change and the way that we might be killing the planet uh, during the pandemic, not fun. So maybe maybe I should wait until uh, no, we're not in a pandemic to write about really, really heavy stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm really proud of it, and and we got to be talking about it, even though we've got other things going on, like the pandemic. We got to talk about climate change because we can't sleep on this. We've been sleeping on it for, uh, you know, like 200 years, and if we if we keep sleeping on this, we're going to get to a point of no return, and then we're really going to be in trouble. I've heard no from worries. James Ponty that you're a pretty picky eater. 
Yes. And I'm <laughs> extremely picky. I won't pick up like, I guess 11, maybe 20, 21st of the food in this world. Probably. Nice. More. Okay. A so, good, a good percentage there. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what is there, if there, is there one food that you wouldn't eat, even if it was like the last food on earth, like so the problem with me, there's a, I love talking about it, and, I, and uh, it's been a thing since I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I grew up a very picky eater, and um, I still am. Uh, I eat about ten things. So it, unlike unlike your math, uh, mine is mine is a very very small percentage. Because, uh, no, I meant uh, I wouldn't yeah. eat twenty twenty first of the things on earth. I don't. Oh eat okay. Okay, I got you. I got you. So I eat very few things. I eat like French fries and pizza, cheese pizza, and I eat. Um, Cheerios with no milk on them. I eat tortilla chips, um, chocolate chip cookies, but I like them to be crunchy and not soft. Mm-hmm. Um, I eat M&Ms, but only plain M&Ms. Yeah. Um, I eat corn on the cob, but not corn off the cob. <laughs> and I will eat like tomato sauce on my pizza, but not ketchup. So like- well, I can do tomato sauce on pizza. Okay. I can do tomato sauce on pizza, but I can't do ketchup. And so there are, there are very, like very specific things. A lot of it has to do with texture, um a lot of it has to do with um with smell uh and, and that sort of thing um i i I've, I've started talking about my picky eating now in terms of like a food phobia you asked like what is one thing that i could never eat there's a whole bunch of things i could never eat and that's the weird thing yeah. uh, i don't think i could ever eat a bug i could i mean i if i was oh, trapped really? under rubble and the only thing i could eat was bugs that were crawling by i think i might just starve yeah. i mean i don't could you eat could you eat a bug I don't think I could, especially yeah. a live one. I've never tried. No, one. for for real, for real, a live one's totally out. Yeah, I, like I've seen people eat bugs like all over the world, but it's just like mm-hmm. I can't handle that. I know. Supposedly, they're a great source of protein. My friend Rebecca Petrick wrote a book. Uh, oh gosh, I wish I could remember the name of it. Uh, but look her up if you're interested in a book about. Uh, I think it's called um, "Boy Bites Bug," instead of like instead of "Bug Bites Boy." I think it's Boy Bites Bug, and it's all about um, all about the eating of bugs. And and look, uh, the bugs cover the earth, and they are a great source of protein. But because of our natural aversion to wiggly things, we, we can't do it. Um, and there are people who make like like bug protein bars. Oh, I I just don't know. I can't. Oh, I can't do it. I know. I'd see you, and you're like, oh, I can't do it. Um, but for me, there's a whole bunch of things where, like, when I was a kid, my parents wanted me to eat really badly. And so they would first, like, say, you can't get up from the table unless you eat something. And I would just fall asleep at the table. Or then they tried to bribe me and they would say, like, we'll buy you the Han Solo blaster. I really wanted the Han Solo blaster really bad from Star Wars. And I, and I was like, they'll, they were like, we'll buy you the Han Solo blaster if you eat this, you know, like these mashed potatoes. And I'm like, I can't, Ugh. I can't do it. I know I can't do mashed potatoes. So, like, I, there, there have, there have been, Times when people have said like, well, I, I went on a field trip uh, in seventh grade. My school went on an environmental field trip oh, to the barrier islands of North Carolina. Yeah. And um, we it was like camping. We were in cabins, but it was a cool trip and we got to be out there, but we had to eat in the cafeteria all the time. There was no other food. And I basically ate like saltine crackers for three days. And um, like three days into it, I was kind of like passing out because I had no food. And they took me to the doctor on the mainland and the doctor asked me a bunch of questions. And I told him my answers, like, I, you know, I can't eat this other food. I won't do it. And even when I was like starving, I wouldn't do it. And the doctor says, I think I understand what your problem is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, tell me because I need to fix this. Like if you can help me fix this, this would be amazing. And he said, your problem is you're not eating any food. Whoa. I know. I was like, wow, how much do we owe you for that brilliant insight? Like, I was like, oh. I thought I was going to get a big answer to my problem. It's all psychological. I don't understand it. I've been trying to figure it out since I was a kid. Um, And it's really weird. As you probably know, as a picky eater, food is a thing that people gather around. Food is a thing that brings people together. We have big family meals. We have big community meals. We have big meals. Like when I go to a a librarian convention or anything like that, and they have like a big dinner. I always want to be a part of those. But I, yeah. but I'm, but I'm not because of my food stuff. I love to travel. Oh my gosh, do I love to travel? But, but going to other countries is hard for me. I spent uh, six months in the Czech Republic right after college and lost a ton of weight. 
Um, and I went, I was in Japan for two months. Um, and boy, did I, I think I dropped 40 pounds in Japan. Whoa. So it's a good weight loss program. If you're looking to lose some weight and you don't eat food, uh, eat the food of the country, go visit a country. Um, but it really made things hard. And the other thing is too, I know that that food is such a part of people's cultures that it's fun to experience it, right? Like my, my wife and daughter went with me to Japan and they had a field day eating all this great, you know, sushi and, 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 and noodles and things. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So uh, like, what's on your list? What's your, what, what's your favorite thing? Um, my favorite thing is probably pizza with no sauce, spaghetti um, with just butter and salt, nothing else. I can't okay. have any cheese on anything. I yeah. don't really like candy. I don't know if that's a problem with you, but I only like- No, candy. I am actually not a candy. I eat plain M&Ms, uh, but that's the only candy I eat. I only eat Twix, so. Okay, so we both have our kind of our one thing. No, at Halloween, I would go around with my friends and do trick-or-treating, and I would come back and trade everything for M&Ms. <laughs> I, would just, I, I usually just give the candy to my parents. and Right, <laughs> use it again next year. Um, I always love making costumes. That was the, the best part of Halloween for me. Um, but unlike all the other kids who are like salivating over the candy, I was like, eh, candy. Yeah. Yeah, me same, same here. So, salt, I love salt. Anything yes. with salt on it, give mm -hmm. me salt. Yeah. So uh, it's nice to hear that somebody else it's not they're not issue it's not an issue it's just it's listen so you two can grow up to be a best-selling author and be a picky eater so just when when your parents or other adults say you know uh, that you've got to eat you could say well alan grass turned out okay yeah. <laughs> yeah i'll definitely tell them that and i can oh, <laughs> i'll get I in would, trouble for that yeah i would the only thing that i eat that most people wouldn't eat like that aren't picky is cottage cheese i don't know why Ooh, gosh yeah, yeah. I, you I don't will know eat why. that? Yeah, I will eat that. I like it. Wow. It's it's oh, weird, man. but I hate everything else. Yeah, yeah. That is weird. It's like me, the only the only kind of fruit or vegetable I really eat that's not in something else is corn on the cob. And wow. it's super random, but boy oh boy, is fresh summer corn so tasty. Well, I would lose a lot of pounds even if I just stayed in America because I don't I do you like burgers? Because I do not. I don't like burgers either. I'm yes, not a burger guy. You. Now I love French fries, but I but I, like I no end. There's some really great burger places here in Asheville, but I just not a burger guy. Yeah, I, I'm starting to grow to French fries. I used to not, not like them, but after having mm. some good French fries, not just McDonald's yeah. ones that get soggy in like two seconds. Right. No, the you got to be crispy, covered, yes. loaded with salt and spicy. Mm -hmm. uh, that nothing. No spices. There's almost nothing better. You don't like the spices too much? No, I don't like spices, but I do like salt. A lot of salt. Yeah, yeah. Salt is great. My favorite rock to eat, as I always told my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the only rock I'll eat. The only rock I'll eat, but I don't, it's also my favorite. Yeah. It tastes delicious. And oh, man. I know that a lot of people are probably watching it, l watching or listening to this like, how do you not like burgers? But <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. It's, and it's really difficult because, um, you go through your life and people some people are like oh that's really that's really weird and they yeah. they're they move on there's some people though when i was a kid and i don't know if you've run into this i'd go over to a friend's house to spend the night and their mom would be like you don't like fried chicken because you haven't had my fried chicken yeah and so they would make fried chicken then and i would sit there and not eat it and i would feel really really bad mm -hmm. and it was like nothing personal but I wasn't going to eat anybody's fried chicken. I wasn't going to eat the best fried chicken in the world, right? Not just this person's. And so sometimes people get really bent out of shape and it, and it, it's it's always hard. I'm always like, it's not, it's all me. It's all me. It's all my weird, my food weirdness. But you never know how people are going to react to it because food is such a basic thing for humans. Yeah. And before I ask you my final question, I have to say that there is this one time like, it's actually been, like, five or six. So I go to my friend's birthday parties, and they have cake. They have popsicles. And, like, they're usually fine. Like, oh, you don't have to eat it. But then at school, there was, um, so my friend brought popsicles for everybody. And the uh, one of my teachers forced me to eat it. They forced Ooh, me gosh. to eat a popsicle. I hated it. I absolutely yeah. hated it. And I knew I couldn't throw a tantrum because I'm at school. <laughs> but, like, it just tasted so bad. I I hate yeah. when those sort of things happen. Like my aunt and my cousins do it, but like it's just family, the joking around. But right, right, right. Other people do it, like that. I'm not that aren't in like my family. They're not good friends with me. It's yeah. just, it's oh yeah, it's, and and you want people to respect your 
your your personal choices you know, uh, like th- there was a point where, you know, when I'm on seventh grade trip and they're like, Alan, eat something or you're going to die. Like that's <laughs> different. But but it was when it's like, E, we need you to eat, like eat this popsicle or we're not going to go on with class. You know, then it's like, well, you know, me eating this popsicle or not is going to be the end of is not going to be the end of the world. So maybe maybe my choice here can be respected, you know. Yeah. So hopefully that's something where uh, that that stinks that that teacher did that. And hopefully as you as you grow up, uh, people will uh, respect your choices uh, more than that. Yeah, I hope so. And now for my final question that I ask every single yeah. author, every single person that I interview, if you could be or meet any literary character, fictional or real, it could also be someone from your own books, because that I don't really care if somebody does that. People say, oh, it's cheating, but no, it's not cheating. <laughs> I would wanna, if I write a book, I would want to spend all my time with one of my characters. So who would yeah. it be and why? Man, so there's a there's a series of books written for adults. Uh, and I don't think there's anything that's super wrong with them for kids, but it's just definitely they're they're written for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrick O'Brien wrote this series of of novels about this sea captain named Jack Aubrey and his best friend, uh, who's the the ship surgeon Stephen Maturin. And the first book is called Master and Commander. They made a movie based on it and a few of the other books. Uh, about 10, 15, gosh, it's probably been 20 years. I don't know, uh, a while back. Um, I love these books. I love, there's 20 of them. And I just read the 20th book this year. Like I stretched them out as long as I possibly could. I, I, I found the series years ago and I've read one or two a year ever since then. And I've tried to drag them out because I love the characters so much. If I could go on a sailing voyage with Jack and Steven from those books, that would be pretty amazing. Like I'd love to meet them and hang out with them. Um, that's probably my number one. And listen, I grew up in the mountains. I didn't grow up on the ocean. I don't, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know starboard from larboard. I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't eat fish. <laughs> so I'd be in trouble on the sea if we ran out of food. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I don't know if I'd be any good at sailing, but I'd love to meet them. Those are characters I would love to to meet. How about you? Do you have one? You asked this question of everybody. Do you have like that one person you'd love to meet from fiction? Hmm, that would be, a, that's a good question. I know, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. No, I'm not tooting my own horn by saying that. Like, No one's really asked me before. <laughs> I'm turning it back on yeah. you. <laughs> so if I you, don't, you don't have to say one of mine. I'm, I'm not fishing for that. Yeah, I know. Hey, that's a good pun because you're just talking about oceans. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if I would probably want to meet Ben Ripley from the Spy School books, not because oh, I'm going to cool. be interviewing Stuart, and just <laughs> that. because I just like for starters, he's a regular kid like me who's pretty, who's really smart, and now and then he became a spy overnight. Like, and I love that there's so there's more and more books in in the series. Like there are twelve yeah. or so. I think yeah. the 12th just came out. I have it right here in my bookshelf. Yeah, there Project you go. X. I'm waiting as long as I can to read it because. Ah, so you're just like me. Yeah. Yeah. You find a series that you love and you want it to last forever. Yeah. Although I don't have, the, I didn't have the patience to wait for Percy Jackson. I read all five series right. in like, I don't know, maybe like a month. Just burn through them. Yeah. Yeah. There's something, there's a lot of fun in that too. And, and I, I'm not a huge rereader. Do you like to reread books? Or no, do you I do not. See me either. That's so weird. That's so cool because um, I've, I run into a lot of people who reread all the time. My wife mm-hmm. reread her favorite books as a kid so much the covers fell off of them. But me, I'm like, once I read a book, I'm like, cool. Now I want to find a new book. I want yeah. to read about new characters in a new world. And it's very few series that I've actually read all the books in. But um, but when I find one that I love, I really want to stay with it forever. But now I'm going to actually go back and reread these. I loved them so much, which is very unusual for me. Yeah. It's nice to go out of your comfort zone sometimes. And I, I yes. read Refugee today before the interview. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not much of a rereader, but when it comes to a good book where I can always learn something new from it, I'll definitely want to reread it. Like, although it's cool. highly rare, even for my favorite books, I've read right. them once and they're in my bookshelf. I say they're my favorite books, but I really never reread them. No, I, I could probably count on one hand, maybe two, if, if I needed to go for six or seven, the number of books that I've reread in my life. 
And a lot of people that just, that just astounds them, especially because I'm an author and I love, I mean, I've reread my books time and time again, but that's because I'm editing them. But, but for, for, for books that I enjoyed that somebody else wrote, um, it's just a handful of them. Um, But, but I'm learning to love rereading because I love going back and seeing things that I didn't see the first time around or that that and that love of uh, that anticipation of the things that I'm going to love in a book you know yeah and now that is the end of the interview I hope you enjoyed my chat with Alan Gratz I know I did and who knows maybe and maybe now you have a little bit more empathy for the picky eaters in your life and remember <laughs> Alan Gratz and E-Train are both very picky eaters and won't to eat burgers and that's not weird that's not weird Yes. Thanks, E-Train. I had a great time. Me too. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. And everybody listening, keep reading. Read Alan's books. I need to start reading some more of his. And just see you soon. Keep And I'll see you in the next interview. Bye. Yeah, I'd love to.